0: Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Henrik Hogue was born in Denmark and came to Hong Kong at the age of eight, where he learned his English, which he now puts to wonderful use as one of the poets of Peel Street Poetry. Every Wednesday evening you can join the open mic poetry sessions. The first Wednesday of the month there's the Poetry Out Loud session at the Fringe Theatre and then the other Wednesday evenings at Orange Peel in Lan Kwai Fong. Henrik Hoge has written a book of poetry, Irreverent Poems for Pretentious People, which won the Proverse Prize in Hong Kong. I started by asking Henrik what appealed to him about reading poetry.
1: I think that's probably pretty different for different poets. Uh, I think there's always an element of performing for yourself in the sense that everyone enjoys it. Some element of poetry is... Being able to express yourself in front of other people. I don't think any of it would work without that. I think it would be a little facetious to say that that isn't there. And you definitely have people that are more inclined to perform for other people and make it seem like entertainment. And what they're doing is trying to uh, make other people laugh. And I know that for a fact because I'm probably one of those people. I'm maybe more inclined to feel like I've done well or to feel good about what I've done if I've gotten some kind of laugh or some kind of response. Maybe that is just for me. I think it's both at the same time.
0: In terms of your subject matter, in front of us uh, we've got uh, your first book, Irreverent Poems for Pretentious People. And uh, this one, in fact, uh, the uh, Proverse Prize uh, of uh, the publisher's Proverse Hong Kong. You're currently working on your second book of poetry. In terms of when you were growing up as a child, your first language was Danish, your second language is Mm -hmm. is English. You came here to Hong Kong at the age of eight. Was poetry always something of your childhood?
1: No. Both my parents were academics and neither of them within poetry or, or literature. The only real poetry that was sort of at home was through music. I guess my parents had quite poetic musical tastes, you know, as like Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, that kind of thing would play. And I didn't get involved with enjoying poetry, not even writing poetry, but just enjoying it until high school where an English literature teacher or two essentially conveyed their personal love for poetry. And that's infectious, you know. you If someone else can show you that something has really captured them and engaged them and they love it there's a strong chance that you might get that sense too and you fall in love with poetry and that happened at the end of high school and then I didn't start writing until maybe late university and certainly not seriously writing until maybe three or four years ago
0: the process of writing a poem for you how does it work you just uh, is it a case of i'm going to spend the weekend writing some poetry see what comes into my head uh, is it structured or is it just totally what i'm thinking about while i'm going along on the mtr
1: yeah it's structured in a very uh, loose sense i feel like there are two steps for me the first step is the step that happens going along the mtr and all those situations or when i'm seeing someone else perform and an idea sparks where I will usually have sort of one line and one idea. Maybe I'm thinking I want to write a poem that compares bananas to an alien invasion or something. I'll probably write that down later. No, that would be a terrible poem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this will result in these uh, these little notes on my phone. I just have pages and pages of notes of things that are one-liners or ideas for poems. And then usually they will turn into poems... On Wednesday afternoons before open mic poetry, when I feel like I really need to write something new, it's actually quite rare that I sit down on a weekend and, and properly write. But when I, when I do, good things tend to happen. I probably should do that more often. I should be more disciplined with my writing. Uh, but last-minute panic is currently the mood that tends to drive my writing.
0: Yes, well, I think that's uh, perfectly natural. So every Wednesday evening, of course, you have uh, the open-mic poetry readings that uh, are both at Orange Peel in Lan Kwai Fong and also once a month at the Fringe Club. I had the pleasure of going a couple of weeks ago and I found the level of talent... Was extraordinary. Um, it was actually a much better night <laughs> than I was anticipating. Very enjoyable, very fun, and also very relaxed. There was nothing pretentious about it.
1: Yeah, the level of talent in Hong Kong is quite ridiculous, especially there's something about the last sort of six months where a lot of people have really come out of the woodwork. And I think going to sort of an open mic poetry night, a lot of the people who have sort of a, a a very strong kernel of poetic talent. Uh, they feel challenged when they see others performing better and better. And it's led to this just steady increase where right now, if you happen to show up to a poetry le- night like you did for the first time, you're probably going to be blown away. And we get that reaction a lot. People will first, when they hear about it, say, oh, there's poetry in Hong Kong? I had no idea. So we're always trying to get the word out because that's the first hurdle we kind of have to overcome. And then when they do show up, they tend to be awestruck by the fact that the level of poetry, while well, they're probably expecting something along the lines of what they studied in high school with tightly rhyming sonnets about how flowers are beautiful and women will not requite their love, and but that's not the case at all. It's, it's both interesting and exciting and modern and the stuff that is going on in Hong Kong and the poetic space is just really, really wonderful right now.
0: I'm talking with Henrik Hoag and hearing about his poetry. He's the award-winning writer or poet of Irreverent Poems for Pretentious
1: People, which was published by Proverse Hong Kong. So we're going to first dodge any swear words. (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) it's RTHK.
1: Yes, it is RTHK. So I tend to write a lot of poems that sort of just mess around with words. Most of the poems in my book in some way are dealing with the flexibility of language or the fun of just seeing what you can do with it. Uh, And this is sort of very directly doing that. It's called I Love Your Words. I love you. I have taken your words seriously. I have taken your words seriously. Expect a ransom note soon. I have taken your words seriously, just not in the order that you gave them to me. I love you. Love you, I. You I love. Love I you. I you love. Lo I view. Live O oh, you, you've oil, you levy oi. I owe oh, you, why love? Come take your words back. I've exhausted them. In your book, I mean, you
0: certainly get a few Hong Kong points across um, mm. that you'd like to make. You came here, as you say, at the the age of eight. Now, prior to age of eight, your, your uh, native language is Danish. Um, did you actually know any English when you first came to Hong Kong?
1: I knew Oh, someone was telling me this story. Someone I knew who uh, was a family friend when I was a child. There was one word I knew. Oh, it was, um, it's funny because it wasn't a single word, but I thought it was. And it was, I am boy. So when I first got into school in Hong Kong, that was literally the only thing I could say. And I thought it was a single word in English that meant, I'm a boy. And I'd say Whenever anyone asked me anything, I would just say, I am boy. Uh, so I was very lucky to, uh, to manage to get into a school at all. I mean, most of the schools we applied to would sit me down in front of this English test, and I literally couldn't answer a single question. And they would say, well, can't really come to the school. And eventually we came across the Canadian school who had just hired a Swedish woman. She was teaching uh, there. And Swedish and Danish are pretty interchangeable. And she was able to essentially teach me English from scratch in these sort of of one-on-one additional sessions. And, yeah, it was just a lucky opportunity. And I learned English from there.
0: What Do you remember, at age eight, coming to Hong Kong what your first impressions
1: were. I remember running around the empty apartment in Park Fulam when we first moved in. I remember being completely unable to sleep. My older sister was there with me at the time. She didn't end up moving to Hong Kong with us because she was significantly older, so she lived in Denmark. But we were so jet-lagged, we couldn't sleep. And I remember leaving the apartment and wandering around Park Fulam at 3 or 4 a.m., because as a kid, you know, it's just what you do. You don't really <laughs> think about it. You're like, oh, I'm wandering around in a new country. Given memories like that, I must have been pretty uninhibited and not too intimidated. But I learned to love Hong Kong very, very quickly. And that came with, with being a kid in that area. I always felt like I could just go explore. Uh, and most of my... Early memories, even before speaking English, were were exploring with kids with whom I couldn't communicate at all in that in that little area of uh, Sandy Bay.
0: Do you do any poetry in Danish?
1: No, I have once or twice tried to uh, write something, but my written and my reading in in Danish has significantly slipped over the years. Uh, I speak Danish pretty fluently, with only a little smattering of mixed-up colloquialisms.
0: Why is it called Peel Street Poetry?
1: Well, it started on Peel Street. Uh, It started at a little bar called Joyce Is Not Here, which is now defunct. Uh, So, Joyce is actually not there anymore. Uh, Joyce now, however, does help run Orange Peel. And that was on on Peel Street. They named it Peel Street Poetry, and the name followed us. Initially, we actually just moved across the street to... uh, peel fresco it's always been a whole peel thing and peel fresco was was good as well right when we're kind of hitting a bit of a growth stride uh peel fresco sort of ended up kicking us out we moved over to orange peel which joyce had a stake in and it was a really serendipitous move because orange peel has so much space for us to grow in and if we had been stuck back where we were on the actual Peel Street, we would have been very much limited. Now we sort of have 30 to 40 people every week in a space that could probably house 60 to 80. So we're actually trying with an advertising push to fill it out.
0: Yeah, Peel Street Poetry comes to Orange Peel every Wednesday evening. Uh, that's in Lan Kwai Fong.
1: So we start at 8 o'clock on Wednesdays, uh, and we go till usually around 10 or so.
0: Now I've got a, a couple of choices from your book, Irreverent Poems for Pretentious People, which I felt were relevant to uh, you know, Hong Kong's education system. One you've got here called uh, Democratizing Education. Could I ask you to read that one?
1: Alright. So this, again, is very uh, very inspired by a person who's been a big influence in my life. Actually, my current boss, Jada Splurton. Uh, and sort of her educational ethos. So it's called Democratizing Education. The voice stealer behaves in subtle ways, a ghost in the academic system. He never overtly silences strays. He's simply content not to listen. And when a child speaks to how she learns best, perhaps by some way other than mere rote, he says, but how did you score on my test? It crafted by academics of note. The voice-stealer, he teaches to the mean a litany of facts without meaning, draining the breath from students who are keen and from kids who just need some believing. But those stolen voices we can reclaim when we let questions be kindling to voices' flame. It's, an interesting thing happens uh, as a third-culture kid growing up in Hong Kong, which is that you never really feel too connected to where you're from and you're never quite fully connected to where you're living Uh, and the third culture, so those are two cultures, the third culture is kind of that international culture for me it's very much the American side of things Uh, and despite having never really lived in America I've always followed American politics while not following Danish or Hong Kong politics very much um so actually, of all things, this is a poem about American politics. Uh, actually, I <laughs> uh, had someone accuse me of this poem being sexist. Uh, so I guess I'll leave that to you guys to decide. Uh, but it's, it's essentially about liberty and the misuse of liberty and political corruption. And it's called Lady Liberty. Her bosom stuffs my ballot box a good girl who swings bipartisan for any hanging Chad, Dick, or Harry. Her lobby panders to my special interest. We push at her propriety and boundaries with gerrymandering fingers until her dirtiest districts legislate at my whim. When I have spent myself on her constitution and she stops jabbering about daddy issues and founding fathers, I send her back across the beltway. She dabs the wetness between her thighs with a dollar bill in preparation for her walk of shame.
0: When I was listening to you at Orange Peel, one of the things that I enjoyed about you was what I'd call sort of linguistic muck around. You really love language, and, I mean, some of the poetry is about set subjects, um, I, but I also enjoy sometimes the way that you pick at a word or you change it around in your sentence structure. The other thing, though, you also do is uh, sonnets, but you're not always that faithful.
1: Uh, yeah, no, they, <laughs> this is true. Uh, so there are a couple in the book. I went f- for a while, I, was, I got a little bit addicted to a history podcast called Hardcore History, and I decided that for a while I was going to write sonnets, uh, historical sonnets, essentially. I think there are three in the book. But essentially I wrote um, three or four sonnets about historical subjects. And uh, the one thing I didn't do is they were not at all an iambic pentameter. And that uh, I've called someone at Peel Street coming up to me and being like, you know, I could just fix these couple of words around and it would be in perfect iambic and it just didn't bother me. I like them the way they are, but I don't mind them either. Actually, I love listening to really well-constructed sonnets, but uh, things like rhyme and rhythm can sometimes get in the way of what you're trying to say, and I think that's the biggest mistake kids, when they're first learning poetry, make. They force the rhyme and have nothing to say because what they think what they're trying to say is the rhyme, and the people who are... Encounter through Peel Street, who use rhyme and rhythm and sound, do it incredibly well where it it enhances and builds or sometimes is the message in a meaningful way. But I worry that if I got too into that myself, because it's generally not the style I write, if I tried to force iambic pentameter and sonnet form and all of this, that what I was actually saying would just end up completely diluted in this attempt of having everything fit perfectly. So I've actually strayed quite a bit away from that. I don't really write sonnets anymore because it's just not my strength.
0: At uh, Peel Street, you also have a, a slam competition.
1: Slam is kind of a, a vague term. There are lots of different ways you can do slams the way we do it, which I think is, is sort of a very challenging for the poets, is we will give a group of poets a prompt, maybe it's like a sentence or a couple of words maybe it's uh, bread and butter or something, and they'll go away for five minutes and they'll write a poem and then they'll have to perform that poem
0: You also uh, teach dyslexic kids?
1: Yes, uh, I've been teaching um, dyslexic kids or otherwise literacy kids struggling with literacy in any other way uh, for about three or four years uh, using a it's a method called the Orton Gillingham method. It's a multi sensory phonemic approach. Uh, and I do that at a uh, small mental health practice in Kennedy Town called the Jadis Blurton Family Development Center. Uh, and that's been very rewarding sort of part of my educational career.
0: Yeah, Jadis Blurton is, is very much a, a specialist. She's uh, uh, in terms of children's development.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's one of the leading child psychologists in all of Asia, really, and really pretty, a pretty inspirational person to, to uh, work for. And that's said, with only mild bias, given the fact that her review is uh, quoted on the back of my book.
0: <laughs> but uh, So do you do any of your poetry with the children?
1: Uh, I do occasionally use poetry to uh, teach literacy. I tend to work with slightly younger kids, but sometimes uh, I take on uh, high school tutoring uh, and there I will go back into English Lit. And yeah, I, I quite enjoy teaching poems. Uh, and it's funny to me that the style of poetry that I learned in high school is what I'm, I teach when I fall back to that but is nothing like what I write or what I will hear on an average Wednesday night, and the way the poetry is taught in high school really hasn't changed since I was in high school at all, and it's the same poems. So I essentially teach the same content I was taught in high school.
0: As well as poetry, you're so into professional poker.
1: Uh, was <laughs> that's that's a, a big was, yeah. Um, after university. Uh, I studied psychology at Edinburgh, um and kind of forgot that part where you apply for a job or an internship coming out of uh university. And I spent the first two years after university playing poker professionally. That was an interesting time in my life. Uh yes. <laughs> um so I I played uh I played mostly online actually, so I was living in in Scotland, playing online And occasionally going out to tournaments around the world. Uh, Vegas for the summer, where all the big tournaments happen. Uh, Eventually, I moved back to Hong Kong. Because if you're playing online, it doesn't really matter where you live. And I had a bunch of sort of very good friends in Hong Kong goading me to come back. And that was great. Moved back to Hong Kong. Played here for a while. Um, And that lasted until uh, April 2010. Which may seem very arbitrary, but uh, that was when the uh, FBI, I believe it was, shut down the two main poker sites <laughs> online because they had passed a law regarding whether or not American banks were allowed to transfer to you know international gambling websites, so they seized the domains and that led to a whole slew of uh, problems and difficulty with sort of accessing the actual cash involved and that was when I sort of decided I maybe needed a different career path and it was a good point to transition.
0: Can I get you to read one final poem from your collection and that's Kindergarten.
1: Okay so this is one that actually, well, it's called uh, Existentialist Angst of a Kindergarten Teacher um, this is one that uh, the performative aspect <laughs> I think is kind of important uh, and I'm glad that You picked it out because it suggests that it still does translate quite well just in the written form. Hopefully because one can hear the song that everyone knows that is in it. So Existentialist Angst of a Kindergarten Teacher. The hip bones connected to the leg bone. The leg bones connected to the knee bone. The knee bones not technically connected to anything because there are vast gaps of emptiness at the subatomic level that prevent any two things from ever really touching. And isn't that just a great metaphor for the inability of humans to ever truly connect? Sleep on that, you little brats. Nap time.
0: My thanks to Henrik Hogue, whose collection of poetry is available in the book Irreverent Poems for Pretentious People. You can join the open mic sessions of Peel Street Poetry on Wednesday evenings. Go to their website, peelstreetpoetry.com, to find out more.
1: And now... It's Hong Kong Heritage Question Time from Gwulo.com.
0: Well, back on the programme today, we've got David Bellis of uh, Grulo.com, the Hong Kong history website. And last week, we had a question, which I'm delighted to say that somebody listening to the programme was able to answer. Is that right?
2: It is, yes. So big thanks to Henry, who wrote in. We were asking about the incinerator out at Moiwo, and he came back and told us there were two, and even better, sent us maps for both of them. So we now know there was one from about 1958, which is where the swimming pool is today. And the other one that we were asking about from the 1980s, that was round by the sewage plant. So lovely. So spurred
0: on by this success, we've got a couple of questions this week.
2: Yes, no stopping us. So this time we're looking for (laughs) uh, listeners who remember Hong Kong from the 1950s and 60s. And the first one is a photo. And you're probably thinking, this is a radio programme, David. But anyway, we'll give it a go. So we had a photo posted of the St. John's Cathedral Choir in 1956. And if you type that into Google, St. John's Cathedral Choir, 1956, the first result should be a photo. And we're trying to work out who all the people are. We've got a few names already. Uh, Dick Worrell, Frank Waller, Ray Jones, that's the daughter of R.E. Jones, who we've talked about on the diaries, wartime time diaries, and a Karen Brandt. And we're hoping to uh, put names to all the other faces there.
0: So that's 60 years ago, the uh, choir at the St. John's Cathedral, 1956. So if you type 1956 St. John's Cathedral Choir into Google, you'll get that up, will you?
2: That's right. That'll be the first, first result.
0: So if people have got ideas on who those people are in the photo of the 1956 choir, um, how can they get hold of you, David?
2: Well, best to send me an email. So that's david at ocom G-W-U-L-O dot com.
0: Now, can I point out, I've just had a look at the choir and uh, you've helpfully put all the sort of B1, B2 uh, sort of marked on there. What do you call them? They're not cassocks, are they? What do do choir boys wear? I'm not sure. (laughs) Were you
2: ever one? I was not. I'm afraid my <laughs> knowledge of choir activities is, is rather small.
0: So, what do you think they'd have been singing in a, you know, in St John's Cathedral? That would have been under Bishop Hall in 1956 for the diocese. So, what do you think that they'd have been singing on an average Sunday morning at St John's Cathedral in 1956?
2: Well, it's one of those times when things probably haven't changed much. Looking at the picture, you know, the cathedral is still the same. I think the clothes they wear just about the same probably the songs they sing are much the same as well i don't know what would it be amazing grace that's always a, a classic
0: <laughs> maybe jerusalem
2: yes yeah, one of the old favorites what's your second question this one comes from a deborah povey she's looking for information about her father bill who unfortunately died when she was three so she knew very little about him uh, she's hoping to to hear from someone who who can fill in parts of the story
0: so deborah's from the uk
2: in the UK now, I believe, uh, Bill and her mum came out to Hong Kong in the mid-50s, and he was working on ships then. He was a, a sailor, talks about ships, the Eastern Maid, the Eastern Queen. And then a few months after Deborah was born, in 1958, he changed work into the Marine Department, and it seems that was the, perhaps the trigger to, to break up the couple. So mum and daughter went back to Britain. He stayed out here in Hong Kong, and then they stopped hearing from him, so they dug into it a bit, and it gets it gets quite a story. They believe that he was involved with gun running to Indonesia. There's a, an American named Kramer or Cremer, possibly involved, and he died in what is now Central Sulawesi in 1961. So, I don't know. So if her, fa- her father died there. Her father died there. That's right.
0: So that's Bill Povey.
2: Yeah. In uh, in Hong Kong sort of in the 50s, working in the Marine Department, working on ships, and then seems to get involved in something a bit shady, sort of gun running to the rebels in Indonesia.
0: Interesting. Well, yeah. so if you've got in, any information, so that's uh, Deborah Povey in the UK, her father, Bill Povey, who was here in the mid-1950s and died in Sulawesi a few years later. And uh, again, if you have any information on that, if you can contact David directly at com. Wow, we're upgrading it a little bit from the Find an Incinerator, aren't we?
2: <laughs> that was just the uh, the start <laughs> to get us going. Yes, now we're on to the serious questions.
0: My thanks to poet Henrik Hogue and David Bellis of com. Next week, I talk to historian Patricia O'Sullivan about the magistrate Henry Ernest Woodhouse, who was also
3: the father of the British comic author P.G. Woodhouse. People were not were kept in common cells. You know. There wasn't a sort of cell for every prisoner by a long way. Oh, so they would be sort of communal? Yes, indeed, yes. And yes. what were the facilities like? Uh, basic, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, unfortunately, all the latrines were directly <laughs> beside the magistracy. The latrines of the jail were directly beside the magistracy and underneath the sleeping quarters of the police. So, no, everything was rather higgledy piggledy and on top of itself. And smelly, I thought. Absolutely. (laughs) So there were, of course, big cases. There were cases of injuring and cases of murder that would then be sent up to the Supreme Court for trial. But the magistrate would would reckon to deal with most of the cases himself. Himself, of course. This is an entirely male world, really, Uh, although you're defendant may not be male they would get through well judging by the papers at this time six eight ten cases in a day is not uncommon thanks for listening and join me next week on hong kong heritage
4: hong kong heritage uh, produced and presented by Anna Marie evans on your station rthk radio 3 <laughs>
1: Lee, thanks for helping Mom with the shopping. You're welcome. I should thank you for helping my son with his homework. Mom, I've learned a new word today: neighbor, and I can make a sentence with it. Good neighbors help each other. Neighborhood help is always there for you. Please support the Hong
0: Kong Federation of Youth Groups Neighborhood First Project.
4: Now, Samuel West continues reading from Graham Greene's classic novel, The Third Man. Tonight, the second-rate Western writer Rollo Martins has arrived in snowbound post-war Vienna to meet his old school chum, Harry Lime, only to find that his friend has just been killed in a car accident and is accused of being mixed up in racketeering. What I disliked about him at first sight, Martins told me, was his toupee. It was one of those obvious toupees, flat and yellow. There must be something phony about a man who won't accept baldness gracefully. This conversation took place some days later. We were sitting in the old Vienna at the table he had occupied that first morning with Kurtz. You were telling me about Kurtz, I said. It appeared that Kurtz was sitting there making a great show of reading The Lone Rider of Santa Fe. When Martin sat down at his table, he said, It's wonderful how you keep the tension. Tension. Suspense. At the end of every chapter, once left guessing. So you were a friend of Harry's? I think his best. Except you, of course. Tell me how he died. I was with him. We came out together from the door of his flat, and Harry saw a friend he knew across the road, an American called Cooler. He waved to Cooler and started across the road to him when a jeep came tearing round the corner and bowled him over. It was Harry's fault really, not the driver's. Somebody told me he died instantaneously. I wish he had. He died before the ambulance could reach us though. He could speak then. Yes. Even in his pain he worried about you. What did he say?